Hebrews chapter 11. And uh, I want you to look at verse 13. Now, there, book of, of Hebrews chapter 11, it, it's the, it's the uh, faith chapter. And um, I don't know, it, it, I love the book of Hebrews. There's just incredible truth contained there. And Brother um, Magnellis that preached Wednesday night, he pulled from a lot of Hebrews and it just got my blood rolling and it just makes me want to preach an entire series starting from the beginning because it's one of those books you got to start from the beginning in order for the stuff that happens at the end to really make sense. But the book of Hebrews chapter 11 is much like that. It's the faith chapter where it talks about all these heroes of faith. But I, I want to show you about, uh, on verse 13, and then we're going we're gonna to take a detour. But It says, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on this earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they'd been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have the opportunity to return. But now they desire a better country, that is a heavenly, where God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Now, you'll have to read the whole chapter to put that in context. I don't have time uh, to do that tonight. But uh, this morning, I, I preached on, are you a citizen of heaven? And uh, that, that's so true. We read verses such as, seek ye first the kingdom of God. You can be seated. We, we, we talked about uh, that in Ephesians chapter 2. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers or foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. And if we would have kept going in Hebrews chapter 11, we read this verse in, in verse 25, that Moses, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And we, we kind of talked about citizenship. And, and uh, I made sure I wrote the words down to the psalm because I was having some difficulties remembering it because my brain shuts off sometimes. But that old song, and it's just been percolating in my mind over and over. But that world, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. I can't feel at home in this world anymore. This morning we preached, are you a citizen of heaven? But tonight I want to preach to the church how to live for God in an unholy world. Here's the reality. We don't belong here. I think I'm preaching to people that have been bought with a price. See, if you don't get that concept, then you are not going to get anything else. We, as I preached this morning, there are no dual citizens. You cannot love God and love this world at the same time. In fact, uh, Joshua said it best, choose you this day whom you will serve. I think back to the, the Alamo, and, and I, I love that type of history. I love the West and the frontier and the, the pushing westward of our, of our country. Uh, and, and you have that story in the Alamo. It's been immortalized in, in movies with John Wayne and, and, and others, but it's a very true statement. They were faced 
with insurmountable odds. It looked as if the Mexican army was thousand times more uh, equipped and capable than the ragtag group that, that huddled behind a, a ill-fitted uh, barricade of adobe and of brick and of wood. And I believe it was Colonel Travis that they were all kind of figuring out, should we give up? Should we surrender? Should we go forth? Should we fight? And Colonel Travis took his sword and he drew a line in the sand and he said, if you want to stay and fight, step over the line. If not, you can go. If I understand my history correctly, only one or two people packed it up and left. In fact, General uh, or, or, uh, Colonel Bowie, Jim Bowie, in whom the the knife is is made and and you know that he made famous, he was laid laid up, his leg broken, and he said, "Somebody carry me across the line." Can I just tell you today? You better get inside of you a made up mind to live for God, because if you don't. And I'm going to talk about it towards the end. If you don't, this world will chew you up and spit you out and you'll be fit for nothing. you got to get some gumption. That's an old country word. you got to get some gumption that says no matter what come, come hell or high water, I will live for God. If you don't have that assurance, if you don't have that, then you need to find a prayer room. You need to find an altar and pray until God can help you because you cannot live in two places at one time. Now, we were here. Can't change that. I don't know anybody that can teleport yet. I don't know anybody that can exist in an alternate dimension yet. But you are here on this earth, but the Bible tells us this is not our home. Any of you ever been somewhere and you had to be there, but you really didn't want to be there? You know? You, you, I mean, you were there. Everything's legal. We're not talking about anything bad. You were somewhere. You, you, you had to be there. You're going to have to do your duties and do what you're supposed to do, but your heart was not there. That's how it ought to be with our walk with God. we got to go to work. We've got to go to school. We've got to do the things that life requires us to do. But this is not where my heart is. And so in doing so, I want to I talk to you. How, do you. how do you have heaven is your citizenship while you live here on earth? And the best way I know is how to live for God in an unholy world. In the book of Daniel, which is one of the best, at least the first six chapters, is one of the best ways to see what it's like to live for God when that's not the most popular thing to do. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah came Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, unto Judah. And you can see that. Let me, let me take you on a, on a journey. God made a covenant with Israel. They were in the land of Moab. It was Deuteronomy chapter 28 through chapter 30. God made a covenant with the children of Israel. He had brought them out of Egypt, brought them through, and he said this. He said, but right before you enter into the land, I'm going to set forth a principle that I'm going to deal with you. If you obey me, if, if you follow the commandments that I've, I've laid out, then I will, be, uh, I will bring you blessing. And so the concept was obedience brings blessing. But disobedience brings a, a curse or a discipline. And he, re, he, he related, he, the Lord said that, that when you do wrong, I will, this is how I'm going to discipline you. I will cause you to go into captivity. I will cause there to be somebody that will turn you. And so he did that. And so in Daniel's time, uh, Judah, if, if you understand, let me just give you a quick quick lesson. Children of Israel 
uh, after David's time, they divided into two kingdoms. They were still the children of God, still Israelites in a sense, but you had the kingdom of Judah, you had the kingdom of Israel. Israel was ten of the tribes, Judah was two of the tribes. Israel's history had a much steeper spiral down into uh, lawlessness and down into uh, uh, apathy and down into idolatry and so uh, it was Israel, it was those first, those northern ten kingdoms that went into captivity first. But for almost a hundred years, Judah kept going because in Judah's lineage there would be a bad king or two and then one king would rise up and would try to change uh, the mindset. They would preach truth again. They would open up the tabernacle and the temple again. But finally, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire came knocking on Judah's door. Jeremiah had prophesied it. Jeremiah had told you it was going to happen. Don't fight it. It's going to happen whether you like it or not. And so they were there. The king took vessels out of the house of God that he carried into his land and he put it in the house of his God. He, they, they ransacked Judah for all of their treasures and all of the things. But one of the things that the king said, he spoke unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel, the king's seed and of the princes. It was children, he said, I want the perfect children. I want the children in whom there were no blemish but well favored. I want them that are skillful in wisdom and cunning and knowledge and understanding science and that have the ability to stand in the king's palace of whom I can teach the language and the learning of the Chaldeans. And so it was that this master of the eunuchs, and eunuchs doesn't necessarily mean uh, uh, what you possibly think it does. It simply means someone that's in authority. And, and so uh, he, he calls them, these captives that they brought out were choice young men. They were designed to be an asset to the Babylonian kingdom. They wanted to assimilate them into the culture. And I want you to, I hope you can, you can pick up on some spiritual parallels as we talk about living for God in an unholy world. When these came out of Judah, everything they faced was designed to assimilate them into the culture of the of the court, they were that they had to learn the language of the Chaldeans. They had to learn the literature. They had to take a three-year training course, and after that, they would enter into the king's service, according to Daniel chapter one. Of all, no, nowhere does it say how many were taken, but four of them are called out. Four of them: Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those last three, perhaps for some of you, don't make a lot of sense. Because it was with Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, things were different. All of those names that, that I mentioned, they're names that honored God. El, E-L, means God. And, and in the Hebrew language, and Ayah, or Yah, that's an abbreviation for Yahweh. And so it suggests that Daniel and, and Mishael and Hananiah and Azariah, they were raised with parents that had a love for God and had named their children to, to recognize God's deity. Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means Yahweh or God has been gracious Mishael means who is what God is, meaning that there's no equal with God. And Azariah meant Yahweh has helped. Every time that Daniel and, and, and Hananiah and, and uh, Azariah and Mishael, they walked, they just represented the power and the presence of God. 
But when they got into the culture, when they got into the court of the Babylonian Empire, this Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, began to change names. Daniel went from God is my judge to Belteshazzar, which it means in Acadia, or Acadian, it means lady protect the king. Hananiah, which meant Yahweh has been gracious, became Shadrach, which means I am fearful of a God. Mishael means who is what God is or who is like God, was given the name Meshach, which means I am despised, I am contemptible, I am humbled before my God. Azariah, which meant Yahweh has helped, now becomes Abednego or the servant of Nebo, which is one of the gods that Babylonians served. This chief courtesan of the Babylonian ranks, he was determined, Ashpenaz, he was determined to obliterate anything that would represent their God. Now, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have walked in a culture, a work, an office, a school, and it seems that everywhere you go, there's this concerted effort to leave anything that resembles God and His holiness aside. And, and so it was that, that they, 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 they were caused to, to, if you will, give up their identity. Now, they had to. They didn't have a choice, no. I'm sure when they talked to each other, they used the name they were born with, but there were, they were caused to. But I have seen far too many times in, in my life that I've lived and walking with people who've been in church, I've seen far too many people that when they walk out into this world, they want to hide what God has done. I mean, I'm just going to lay it straight. You can like it or not like it. But I know a lot of people, they, they, they don't like terms holy rollers and, and not that we've done that. I don't know if anybody's ever holy rolled in this church. But, you know, it's kind of one of those names that sticks with the Pentecostal genre. They say, oh, you must be some of those that handle snakes. Um, I've never handled a snake in church. And if I did, it's because it shouldn't be in church and we're going to get it out of the church. But uh, I don't understand that. But, you know, we go to, we go to school and all of a sudden the witness shuts down. Hey, don't you go to that church? Yeah, I go to a church. Well, well what, what happened at your church last night? Well, you know, it, it was a good church. And all of a sudden, we're wanting to obliterate any of the testimonies that we have to God. If you want to live for God in an unholy world, don't let the world dictate your testimony. Don't let the world change who you are. Don't let it. Nebuchadnezzar, he wanted these, 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 these people. They, Daniel was most likely 16 according to most scholars. He, he wanted them to grow up. He wanted them to, to have everything they could possibly have. It was a life of luxury. They were not, yes, they were in captivities, but they were not deprived. They had everything they wanted. In fact, the Bible says that, that they had the, the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them after three years at the end they might stand before the king. And here was Daniel and, and, and uh, uh, sorry, we always call them by their Babylonian names, but just for the purpose of the sermon, I'm going to do my best to remember it was Daniel and Hananiah and, and Mishael and Azariah, and they stood there. Their names have already been changed. Uh, not by their desire. But here they come and, and now all of this great feast is laid before them. Problem was, 
the food didn't conform to the requirements of the Mosaic law. Remember, we're still in the Old Testament. We're still under the, the Levitical law, Leviticus and Deuteronomy and, and, and them. And, and, and for one thing, it was prepared by Gentiles. And there was some, there was some teaching that, you know, Gentile, you, you prepare your own food. That way you know where it came from. And, and then not only that, but there were no doubt many things that were forbidden that was on that buffet table. Again, I don't have time to get in it, but you, if you recall, you know, a, a, those of the Israelite, those of the Jews, they couldn't eat anything with, a, with, with a cloven feet. Uh, they, couldn't eat, they couldn't eat anything that slithered. They, had, they couldn't eat anything that didn't have scales. That meant, that meant uh, uh, catfish and, and, and shrimp. That was out of the question. It's a bad thing to be in the Old Testament. I'm glad that got taken care of by Jesus coming down here. He said, I've come to take care of some of those old covenants. But, but they couldn't do anything. They couldn't eat, couldn't eat snake, couldn't eat some of the birds, you know, uh, all of that. and Couldn't eat pig. Now laying down on this table, there's a big pig with an apple in his mouth. There, there, were, there, was, there was fish and there were things they couldn't eat. Not only that, but it was wine that they had. And while the Jewish people, they would have drink, drank wine because the, the water clarity and water quality, you know, you didn't just drink any old water. If you read anything about the Jewish history, they always watered down that wine. They didn't drink it. They weren't drinking it to get drunk. But now they had everything they wanted. And not only that, this food had most likely been sacrificed first and offered to pagan gods before they were eating it. And so here it was, to eat this food would have walked contrary to the doctrines and the things that they had been taught. But Daniel's desire, and I want you to listen very carefully. I, I, I have, have struggled all week long with this because I want you to get what I'm feeling. That, that Daniel, here was Daniel's point. Daniel's desire was I want to please God even when I'm not in the godly land. I'm going to get right to where you and I walk. Daniel was raised in Israel. If he would have done the things that they're wanting to do, there were priests and Levites and his mom and his dad. I mean, they lived under the, 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 the judicial law, the Jewish law that said if you disobeyed your mom or you disobeyed your dad, your mom and dad had the right to take you outside the city and pick up rocks and stone you to death. Church would be a lot smaller if we operated in that capacity, myself included. But there was some, I mean, you, you couldn't just do anything you wanted. There was some laws. There was some religious ceremonial laws that governed the ways that they walked. But now you are, you are miles away and there's no preacher looking down your shoulder. And there's no priest hanging over you. And mom and dad, Daniel is about 16. Mom and dad aren't looking at you. And Daniel's in a faraway place and he could have gotten away with it. Nobody would have known. Daniel said, I'm living for God in an unholy world, meaning that I will act. I, even though I'm not in a land, even though I'm not in a culture that follows God's law, even though I will be the outcast, I'm the only one, it seems, that lives for God in my school, in my work, in my neighborhood, in my family, but I will consider myself under the law. So he asked the chief, he said, he said, why don't you excuse us from eating that, that, that food and that wine? Let me, let me eat 
uh, pulse. Now, pulse is anything that was grown. They could have eaten any vegetable. They could have eaten grain. Anything that grew, they could have eaten. You know, a planted and grew. And so they said, basically, let us eat a vegetarian-type diet and let us just drink water. Now, the, the, the uh, Ashpenaz, he said, oh, no, no, no. Because first off, you're going to do that and you're going to start losing weight. King's going to come in and say, what happened to these four? And I'm going to have to tell them they disobeyed you. And not only are you going to die, but the king's going to take me and take my life as well. And Daniel said, no, 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 just try us. Just try us for ten days. And see if God doesn't intervene. See if God doesn't show favor. See if God doesn't help us if we do what he asked us to do. And so they go. After 10 days, those four that had lived on that vegetables and water, they appeared healthier than those who had dined on the king's food. And so they said, all right, do that. Go ahead. In fact, later on, at the end of the time, after those three years of doing the same thing for God, it said that they were, they were ten times better than all the other ones that had done that. I want to ask you a question today. What stand do you take? You're living in a world where that, that everything that the Bible is, this world almost wants to summarily throw it out. I preach behind this pulpit. Let me tell you, it's tight as a fiddle in here right now. I preach behind this pulpit, and there's things that, that, that the word of God goes forth. It's completely anti-politically correct. There's people that, that leave, none of y'all, but there's people that leave and say, Pastor, I can't believe you preach that. I can't believe, can't believe you're so narrow-minded. They do all of that. But I'm asking you this question. What stand do you take? When you leave those two double doors, and I'm not going to see you until uh, most of you, I won't see till next Sunday, but some of you I might see on a Tuesday, and a few of you might see on a Wednesday. But what stand do you take when pastor's not there? What stand do you take when you're not reading the Bible and you're not doing what is? How Are you willing to live for God in an unholy world? Does the Bible say to be holy? Be holy for I'm holy. Is it still proper for a man to dress like a man and a woman to dress like a woman? Is, it, is the principle of modesty and holiness still active in this day and age? Absolutely. I know people that when they, when they leave, in church they're one thing. But when they leave, everything else changes. I don't know if any of you have done it, and I, 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 will, I will use the ladies because there's a very visible sign of dressing like a lady. You, you, you wear your hair long, you wear a skirt, and you do that. And I, I've heard stories of growing up, none of y'all, I hope. Young lady, she'd, she'd get on the bus, and she'd look very holy. But as soon as she got to school, she'd go into the bathroom, and she'd take the holy dress off, and she'd put on other things walk around school so she could blend in with the people. And then before she got on the bus to come home to mom, she'd change her clothes. That was exactly the opposite of what Daniel wanted to do. 
I know guys that, man, in church, they could lift their hands, they could give God praise, they could worship, they could run the aisles. But, but as soon as they get around their work friends, their, their conversation goes down into the dumps and the jokes go down in the dumps. And, and, and suddenly, that's exactly what I'm trying to preach about. What do you do when no one's watching? What do you do? I mean, nobody would have known. At this point in, in Israel's history, the only ones over there were those, were those princes that they, had, that they had taken, kidnapped, if you will. Mom and dad's not there. It wasn't for a couple years before Babylon takes all of the people and brings them over to Babylon. But there they were. They were, they were standing. I want to tell you today that standing for God in an unholy world, while it might be unpopular, the blessings of God are great when you stand for Him. How many, how many people in, in the book of Daniel, how many Hebrews, how many of the children of Israel can you name? Well, Come on, it's a simple question. Help me out. In the book of Daniel, it mentions four Hebrews. Who are they? That's not the only ones that went. The reason you know their names is because they stood for truth. Because when, 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 when you and I got on... <sighs> When you and I got on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because I can't remember their Hebrew names, and you get on Daniel, when you got on their Facebook posts on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday on vacation, they were exactly the same as they were in the church. And, and, and so what it was is they took a stand, and God's promise and God's uh, 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 teaching is if you obey, I bless. And so here they are. I know people made fun of them. I know there were those that says, don't you want this T-bone steak? I mean, come on, look at this pile of bacon. Surely, Daniel, you want to eat the bacon. Daniel's over there slipping on a, on a, a, a carrot stick and a, and a smoothie. But he said, it's all right. Because I know what God has brought me here for. At the end of the time, they're, they're fatter, they're, if you will, they're ten times better. And it catches the eye of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream one night. And in the middle of that dream, he, he begins to dream. And so he's desperate to know what the dream is. And so he calls all the wise men and the magicians and the enchanters and those that do, do this. And he says, tell me the dream. And so they think for a moment. Normally, Nebuchadnezzar would say, this is what I dreamed. And he'd lay it out and then the, all the magicians and all and could say what they wanted to say, but this time he said, no, no, I'm just curious. If you're really a wise man, if you're really a magician, if you really have all this knowledge and you can see the future, you tell me what I dreamed. And I, they couldn't do it. And finally, he said, well, I'm going to kill all of the wise men. I'm going to kill all of these, these princes. Daniel hears about it, and Daniel tells chief eunuch, he says, get me an audience with the king. Because while I may not be able to do it, I've got a God who can help. 
And so Daniel approaches the king, and Daniel begins to talk to the king, and Daniel tells the king exactly the dream. He said, he said this is what you dream. You dream that there was a, a big statue in the middle, and, and, and the top of it, the head, and, and, and maybe down to the shoulders was gold, and then the chest and the arms, it was, it was, uh, it was silver. And, and then you go a little bit further, and it turns into brass. You go a little bit further until you get to the legs, and they were made of iron. And then as soon as you get to the feet, the feet were iron and clay mixed, and then and all of a sudden you saw this, this boulder that was not cut by human hands roll out of the mountain and it smashes the feet and it lays that entire statue down and it pummelizes it and, it, and, and, and pulverizes it and, and, and that's what it is. And the king goes, yeah, that's what I dreamed. Daniel says, well, I know what the interpretation is. The interpretation is, is that your kingdom is, your kingdom is, is, is the gold. It's the, it's the beauty. It's the, the power and the might. And even if you will, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, that was God's choosing. God said this is going to happen. And then, then from there, you, you go a little bit further, and, 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 and you're going to see this, this silver. This is going to be the, the Medes and the Persians that are going to conquer Babylon. And, and those two arms of silver you see, they're going to come, and it's going to last a little longer. And then the belly and the thighs of bronze, that's that third kingdom. That's going to be Greece that's going to come. It's going to look good. It's not going to quite be as strong. And then you're going to get the legs of iron, the Roman Empire. And while there may not be any beauty to it, it's going to be a strong empire but then keep going you're going to find that that empire is going to regress until it's like iron and clay and, and, and those two don't mix and it's going to be a weakened empire and finally this rock and all throughout the scriptures the rock Jesus the chief cornerstone Jesus the rock is going to come and the kingdom of God is going to be able to destroy and you have all of that and the king is so moved at Daniel's interpretation that he, he, he even bows before Daniel and he says, I'm going to give you an offering, whatever you want, here it is. And Nebuchadnezzar confesses that Daniel's God is superior to all the other gods. He's Lord over the earth's kings. And all of that was possible because Daniel chose to take a stand. And, and, and so it keeps going. I know I'm giving you a history lesson, but I want you to take the truth out of this. And so it all goes. It keeps going. And so Daniel, uh, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar says, Daniel, I'm going to make you a great ruler. I'm going to put you high up in the kingdom. And Daniel says, well, that'd be great, but I've got three friends. You call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but, but I'm telling you, you need them. And so those all four serves the king. Then Nebuchadnezzar, he gets a big head. He said, man, I remember when Daniel told me about this dream. He said that the, the Babylonian empire was gold. So Nebuchadnezzar walks out into a field on the outskirts of that town of Babylon. And he constructs some sort of an image. We don't know exactly what it was, but it was gold. And it was tall. And it was beautiful. And he, he says, I need everybody. He didn't just get all the people. Let me just tell you, contrary to what many say, it wasn't just anybody that gathered on that field. He gathered the princes, he gathered the rulers, he gathered the, those that, that made a difference, those that had positions, and he gathered their, them there in that field, and he said that, that when you hear the music play, I need you to fall down and worship the image of gold. I want a public display of recognition and submission to, his, to my authority. Listen very carefully. There's some nuggets of truth that I'm going to tell you about. The statue 
elaborate preparations went <coughs> to make that statue. It looked beautiful. <coughs> Aesthetic, aesthetically, it was appealing. But Nebuchadnezzar is smart. He says, I'm not going to just put a big product out there. I'm going to get some music. Because that music made the scene emotionally appealing. You with me? He knew how to turn the heart. If he would have just said, everybody bow to me, people wouldn't have done it. But he knew how to present something good. And he knew how to get the heart strings just right. Why do we have, why, why, if you've ever watched a video or a movie, why do they have a score behind it? Because when, when, when the cowboy is riding breakneck speed on his horse and he's heading out to catch that stagecoat, why do they play William Tell Overture behind it? Because it gets your blood pumping. And when he looks that heroin in the eye and, and, and all the gushy, mushy stuff starts happening, the harps start playing. And, King Nebuchadnezzar knew that. And then he added the furnace, the deterrent. If you don't bow... You burn. Now the Bible doesn't mention anything about Daniel. I can assure you Daniel would not have given up steak only to die at the hands of a furnace or to make God mad if he didn't bow. I don't know where Daniel was and why he's not in there. But in the middle of the music, in the middle of the great pomp and circumstance, everybody begins to bow and in the middle of that crowd, three Hebrews children stand. They didn't make a scene they weren't protesting. They didn't have Facebook pages to talk about their cause. They didn't get signatures. They were respectful, but they just stood. Got some people riled up around them. They were already against those four that God had set into positions of leadership. And so they begin to go. They run to the king. There's three of these that didn't bow. And Nebuchadnezzar is furious with rage. And, and, and he, he, he's ready to just... To, to, to unleash it, he says, take the, the furnace seven times hotter. I, I want you to just, just destroy it, if you will, whatever you can do. And, and so he says, I need my strongest guards. I don't even want to take time to, to, to strip them. And that was a common thing in that nature. Throw them in, everything. And they throw them into the furnace. Furnace is so hot, the guards that were carrying them die instantly. Nebuchadnezzar is sitting on his podium. And, and his dias, and he's looking, and, and there's three walking in the fire. He strains his eyes and now he sees four. One of them, he says, is like the Son of God and he remembers that, that thing he told them right before he threw them in. He said, I am so mad, I'm going to throw you in the fire and what God do you think is going to rescue you? And he looks, he says, surely that fourth one is like the Son of God. He finally calls them. He says, come out. And they walk out of there. And in their mind, they're, they're excited. But I'm going to tell you, long before God delivered them out of the fiery furnace, there were three Hebrew children that looked the king in the eye and said, the God we serve is able to deliver us out of the fire. But if for some reason he doesn't deliver me, I'm still going to stand. Now, I'm glad God delivered them, but I'm going to tell you the story would be just as powerful if God would have let them die because the stand was, I'm living in an unholy world, but I know the God in whom I serve. God 
brings them out of there. It says that they were examined and the bodies were unharmed. In fact, their clothing didn't even smell like fire. And the king promotes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and promotes them to positions of great honor because they took a stand. Say, Pastor, why are you telling me this? Do you remember, those of you who've, who've been here a few years, do you remember when I preached the story, or preached the, 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 the book of Revelation? And one of the truths that I begin to see in the book of Revelations is this. Who you are right now is who you will be in eternity if it ends today. That I'm convinced that if God could take the most unholy uh, uh, atheist sinner in the world and pick him up and put him on the street of gold, Brother Harvey, it wouldn't make that atheist happy. They would be miserable in the presence of God because they're miserable in the presence of God on earth. But those that worship God, when they get to heaven, it's just going to be an incredible continuation of the praise. You've heard me preach this. I'm, I'm going to bring this together. You've heard me preach this, that any of you that want to lift weights, any of you that want to be strong, uh, uh, um, you know, you, you go to the gym and you see that 500-pound weight bar set going. You can walk up to it all you want. Some of you may be able to do this, but I would say that would be about two or three of us. But you could walk up to that 500 pounds and you could get ready to reach it and yank it up. Most of you would leave your arms connected to it, dislocated from your shoulders. If you want to do that, you start with the small things. You go and maybe you just do the bar, 45 pounds. After a while, that becomes easy and you put 50 pounds. Now you're now you're running around about 100 pounds and you do that for a while and then that becomes easy. Now it's 125 and, and, and now it's 200 and 250 and you keep going. Now, there's a lot of ways that you can view the end times. There's some that say that the Lord is going to come back before the tribulation days. There's some that says he'll come back in the middle. And there's some that says he'll come back at the end. And to be honest, I don't really have a good answer for that. I've got my preference. I've got what I think it says. But at the end of the day, I don't know. But watch this. If you can't stand for God now, when the worst thing that's going to happen to you in the United States of America is someone might make fun of you, there's no way you're going to stand when they say that if you don't take the mark of the beast, we'll kill your family. Don't look me in the eye and say, Pastor, I'll be strong in that day when you can't even go to your work and be like a Christian and, and be holy outside of the church. Don't, don't tell me you'll stand then. The reason that, that Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego could stand with the, with the understanding of I might go to the fire was because they had stood... When, it, when, when that fire wasn't quite in play yet. They said, give us 10 days and we'll, we'll eat the vegetables, we'll drink the water, we'll make a stand. Go to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel was, Daniel was 16 when he was, um, when he was brought into captivity. 66 years later, you have Daniel in the lion's den. I don't know if you know that. Let me say that again. 
Daniel was around 16 years old when he told the king, I'll just drink water and eat vegetables. He made that stand. You go through several different kings. You go through, you go through uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and then you go through uh, uh, Belteshazzar, and then you go through Darius, and there were actually kings in between them that we don't see a lot about, but history records it. 66 years later, Brother Peters, what's 16 plus 66? 82. Most of us don't think about, you know, those people living that long. 82 years old. That was the man that said, I don't care what the king says about praying. I'm 82 years old. My life might end tomorrow. I need God just to help me breathe today and just make it one more day. And he kneels down, his face uh, planted towards the east, and, and he prays. And then they, they bring and say, we're going to throw you in the, Daniel, in, in the lion's den. And Daniel says, that's all right. Because I know the God that I serve. King Darius, he was beside himself. He didn't know what to do. He had already signed an edict, and what the king had written, the king has to follow. And so Daniel's in the lion's den. An 82-year-old man, most likely, is in the lion's den, and there's a king, Darius, is pacing back and forth. I don't know if Darius knew about the pulse in the water. I don't know if Darius knew about the three Hebrew children, but Darius is walking the floor, and when morning time comes, Darius runs and pulls open that sealed lion's den. And Daniel's sitting there, Realizing once again that when you live for God, the Lord will take care of you. I want us to stand. I'm asking you this question. Maybe I didn't have the perfect points. Perhaps some of you were wondering exactly where is he going. Where I'm going is simple. Can you live for God when nobody's watching? Can you live for God? Can you be holy? Can you be modest? Can you exhibit the characteristics of a Holy Ghost-filled person when nobody else is looking? Can you take a stand and say, even though I could get away with it, even though nobody probably is going to say anything if I go eat the bacon when I know I shouldn't, if I partake of the wine when I know the Word of God at that time said, don't do it said no I've decided that I'm going to live for God even if nobody else around me does because Daniel now he had those three Hebrew children that went with him but I promise you right now if Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego would have said uh uh you're on your own Daniel would have been the only one eating and drinking according to the plans of God I hope you're catching what I'm putting out What stand are you willing to take? When the world says it's okay to do this and okay to do that and don't worry about what the Bible says, don't worry about what your parents say, don't worry about what the preacher says, you can do whatever you want to. You've got to be willing to say, I'm going to live for God just like I'm in Israel. That's what Daniel said. We, we use that little phrase, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And, you know, it was all over. And you, you have the cliches that if, if Jesus came to your house, what would you have to change? What would you have to put away? What would you have to do? And all of those are good cliches and, and you know, they're great illustrations. But here's the point. You need to live for Jesus 
like you're already in heaven. I don't think you got it. I'll preach to y'all for a while. You've got to live for God like you're already in heaven. If there's something you would do that would, and we talked about what would keep you from heaven, and I begin to list a whole lot of things that this morning that, that would keep us out of heaven. If you were in heaven and all of a sudden you did this or you said that or you wore that or you went there, would, would God be okay with that? The answer is no. You need to step aside and say, Lord, let me refocus. I'm going to live for you in this unholy world like I'm living in heaven because that's my goal. Hallelujah. Why don't you lift your hands and why don't you let the Lord talk to you? I'm going to open these altars. I believe every one of us need to find a place to pray. Every one of us need to say, Lord, direct me. God, what is it that I've got?